welcome to this episode of the Pump Courts Family Law Podcast. Today I'm joined by Samara Brackley, who's a junior member of Chambers um, and a specialist in financial remedies. She is an expert on the new reforms in no-fault divorce, having presented to at least 722 people at the last count um, at the Pump Court Family Law webinar uh, the other day. So I am thrilled to have her on the show with me. Samara, welcome. Thank you, Tara. I think you're doing yourself a disservice by not mentioning that you were also (laughs) on that seminar. (laughs) But there we go. Very, very pleased to be here still talking about this very exciting topic. Well, we've already had D-Day, haven't we? The new law came in on the 6th of April 2022, and that was the Divorce, Dissolution and Separation Act 2020, um, which received royal assent on 25th of June and came into effect, as I've said, on the 6th of April. And um, Samara, can you just tell me a little bit about what, um, what key change the DDSA has brought with it? So I think when we talk about no-fault divorce, this is what we're talking about. So effectively, it's taking away the opportunity to lay any blame at anyone else's door in terms of the divorce. So it's literally going to be, um, and we'll come on to talk about this, I think, but a tick box exercise to just say that the marriage has broken down, um, which is really significant. So it's removed the five grounds for divorce, which we used to frequently refer to. So you won't be able to pursue anyone for any allegations of unreasonable behaviour or anything like that. That has got its own consequences, which again, I think we'll talk about in a bit, but that, that really is the main change is that the grounds have been removed and just replaced with this statement that the marriage has broken down. And that statement is sort of conclusive, isn't it, of the irretrievable breakdown. There's no need for the court to inquire um, beyond that statement, which is going to simplify matters um, no end. Um, another key change, Samara, is that the emphasis now is on making um, joint applications. And I think we'll, we'll, we'll touch on that. But you're also going to be speaking, aren't you, about um, the fact that you will not be able to defend a divorce apart from in very um, confined circumstances. Yes, so I think this is another part of this uh, law change being no fault divorce is that because there isn't this opportunity to lay the blame at anyone's door, it is also taken away with it the opportunity to defend any allegations of blame. Um, So yes, apart from in very limited circumstances, which are more factual um, than allegations that need to be tried, uh, you won't be able to defend a divorce anymore. Although we're using the word contested now, aren't we? That's part of also the difference, the language has been updated. But yes, you won't be able to contest a divorce. Yeah, we're going to touch on the language as well, because that that certainly um, heralds a a more modern approach to this area of law. Um, And we're also going to look at um, some key changes with procedure. I mean, in the headline points, Mara, am I right in saying that the key changes are in respect of service and that the default is service by the court and service by email? That is really the headline point. So practice direction... Um, six and practice direction seven have both been amended as have rule seven uh, and rule six Uh, so 
all of that has been uh, has been amended um, and all of that is now actually available on uh, the government website where the family procedure rules are I checked that today they've all oh, been uploaded so there's a separate section for uh, applications that were issued before the 6th of April and applications issued after the 6th of April uh, so it's all there it's all available so if you've got new applications or old applications you can check the rules for part six and seven and the accompanying practice directions okay great that's very helpful um so in terms of um, the, the key changes, then, um, if I start off with terminology, um, can you just run through what, um, what uh, the new language uh, that we're concerned with is? So we're not calling it a petition anymore. Um, it's an application. I have already several times made that mistake. I think it's going to take some time to get used to. Uh, so a petitioner has become the applicant. Uh, decree NISITE is now a conditional order. Uh, decree Absolute is now a final order. Um, and as I said earlier, you no longer defend the proceedings. They are disputed or contested. So we're not using the defended language anymore. Okay, and it's it's certainly not the archaic language of decree NISITE. No, definitely absolute. not. And the application process itself, am I right that you can make the application uh, either by paper or digitally, but it's mandatory if legal representatives are involved to use a digital service? Yes, that's right. Uh, the only caveat, though, and Tara, you and I were musing on this when we were doing uh, the preparation for the seminar. The only caveat is that if you are a solicitor who's acting for joint applicants, then you have to use the paper D8. And mm. we could not figure out a reason for that, could we? No, we can't. Um, it, it, it's still a, a bit of a loss to us. So if anyone listening um, finds out why that is or the reasoning behind it, we would love to hear from you. Drop us an email. Um, and in terms of the actual sort of if you are doing it digitally, um, as I understand it, it's the same credentials on my HMCTS, uh, but it's just a different drop down menu, is it? Uh, yes, I believe so. So I have spoken to some of my instructing solicitors about this since it came in last week. But actually, when I spoke to them, it was the 6th of April and mm. they hadn't had much luck because the system crashed. Oh, dear. Um, so <laughs> unsurprisingly, <laughs> so many, given the lag. Completely, completely yeah. unsurprisingly. Um, but yes, I believe it's exactly the same. You log in and it says divorce case, new divorce case, and you should be able to process your uh, and still check on your old applications as well as your new applications. Okay, and a quirk of if you're doing it by paper is that it's going to be scanned and stored on the electronic system anyway. So if if people are sort of advising clients to go off and do it themselves, they should encourage them to either do it in legible handwriting or print it. Yes, or if you're encouraging your client to go off and do the joint application, yeah. they can do that online anyway. So if, if they're not using you to do their joint divorce application, uh, yeah. then I would just tell them to do it online. I agree. OK, and then just if we have a think about the actual process itself, um, day one is the day that the application is filed. 28 days thereafter, uh, the aim is that the application is served on the respondent or on both parties if it's a joint application. Now, we're going to touch on some anxieties that people have raised about um, what happens if there isn't service within the 28 days. Um, 
14 days thereafter from the date of service, the acknowledgement of service has got to be filed. And, and we think that is included, including um, acknowledgement of services by joint applicants. Yes. Um, which is bizarre given that they're both applicants. So technically, who you know they're not responding they're not not needing to but but we think the rules say that that they do need to 35 days from the date of service if the respondent intends to dispute the proceedings then they've got to file an answer um and it's 20 weeks from the date of issue of the application itself that the parties can apply for the conditional order. Now as I understand it the 20 week period is to allow for a period of reflection mm. um and that period cannot be uh, or the overall period can't be extended um by the court which is an important point when we talk about what happens if um the uh respondent isn't served in time um do they get adequate notice and you're going to tell me a little bit more about that but as I understand it, it's the same application. It's a form D84, whether it is a sole or joint applicant um, giving notice of an application for the conditional order. And then six weeks thereafter, um, the conditional order can be converted into a final order. And at that point, as I understand it, the sole applicant or applicant one files notice um, for it to be made final using D36, but a joint to sole applicant uses form D36A. Yes, that's right. Uh, just pausing there because I think it's an interesting point to note. Um, and it came up uh, in my case earlier today mm. in respect of uh, needing any permission, which I know is colloquial jargon that we all use, but in terms of needing permission to apply for a final order, as you did for decree absolute, if it has been over 12 months since decree NISI, uh, that has now gone. So there's no awkward conversations with your client at the end of an FDR or a final hearing saying, have you had any more children whose father is or could have been um, mm. this child that you've had since? Um, that mm. has gone. So actually, when you look at the D36 and D36A, the first question on the form is, has it been over over 12 months since the conditional order was made if so what is the reason for the delay and that is yeah. the only criteria that the parties have got to uh, fill out and satisfy the court of was that there was good reason um, and I don't see any reason why saying because I was sorting out my financial remedies application would be yeah. considered a bad reason so there's yeah. no uh, you know have you lived with have you lived with them or reconciled the relationship since decree eyesight that has all gone so again another reflection of how things are modernizing and we're getting rid of archaic criteria and I'm just wondering now given that we're sort of reducing the hurdles to for people to get divorced whether that 20-week period of reflection it has been kind of in instituted to kind of um sort of give give divorce this the um almost a respect it deserves so because everything else has become so easy and straightforward they want people to make sure they've made that decision not lightly but having fully considered all the circumstances I think that must be right uh, because it is it is a really serious decision and mm. when you listen to a lot of not necessarily legal commentators but over the past week Tara I'm sure you've heard it reported on the news on the yeah. radio you've you know read articles in probably the legal press and non-legal press about it 
And there's a lot of commentary from non-lawyers saying, Mm. is this going to make divorce easier? Are there going to be more divorces? I think most lawyers would say, no, there's likely to be a spike because a lot of people were waiting for no divorce. Yeah, exactly. To push to to push their divorce through when it came into force because they didn't want to enter into a blame game. Um, But do I think that it's going to make divorce easier? No. Uh, But I do think that they have put into this uh, timeline, this 20 weeks, so that you do have that period of reflection because of the fact that the the application and the way that you go about it, it can't be challenged. So it is really something that needs to be thought about. Yeah. And one thing I just want to touch on when we're thinking about converting a conditional order into the final order is that there is still a possibility um, for a respondent to apply pursuant to Section 10.2 of the Matrimonial Causes Act to delay the final order so that the court can consider the finances. Now, under the previous law, that used to be limited to cases of separation, whether it was two years with consent or five years without consent. Um, Under the current law, obviously, because we're not having the five different particulars, um, Section 10.2 applies to everyone and unless the respondent can satisfy the court of matters in um, 10.3 section 10.3 i.e that um, the other party should not be required to make any financial provision the financial provision made by that party is reasonable and fair and the best that can be made in circumstances or that the party is going to undertake to make provision that there should be no final order so Section 10.2 might be a way of sort of uh, disputing uh, the case when when really you haven't now got the grounds to defend or dispute because it's a way of instilling delay. Mm. I think for a relatively underused section, and I think that's because actually, I don't know about you, Tara, but most divorce petitions that I came across were on the basis of unreasonable behaviour. I don't think that I saw that many certainly on five years separation I really didn't see many of those um on the basis of two years separation probably more but I would say the most common was unreasonable behavior so under the previous law section 10.2 would not have been a provision that would have been available to you now that it's available to everyone I think it will be really interesting to see whether there is a spike in litigation concerning section 10.2 because of the fact that it's now available to everyone and as you say the ability to argue over the facts or particulars of the divorce has largely been removed. Yeah and so moving on to the applications themselves so as we've highlighted there can be a sole application or a joint application just quickly dealing with sole applications um, it's an application obviously by an applicant so no longer the petitioner and a key thing to bear in mind is that sole applications cannot be converted into joint applications so one of the things that we would say to all instructing solicitors um, should be discussed when considering um, the divorce at the outset is do these parties want to do this jointly? Do you think there's going to be any chance of them at some stage wanting to do them jointly in a collaborative way? If so, then they need to be told they cannot convert it from sole to joint. Mm. Um, And the other couple of points to note, and you're going to have a little look at service in a moment, is, as I've said, it can be online or by using the D8. If we move to joint applications, this is the encouraged method 
applicants are known as applicant one and applicant two. The application can be digital paper, but as Samara, you've highlighted, if both, uh, if, if, if both applicants, applicant one and applicant two are represented by the same solicitor, then um, that application must be done on paper. Now, when the parties make a joint application, they don't have to be in the same room, do they, Samara? No, no. So you don't have to sit down and fill it out together. You don't have to go to a solicitor who witnesses it all. Um, you can sit down and do it. So, for example, if you're represented, but your ex-spouse isn't, then you can sit down and fill out your bit with your solicitor. Yeah. Um, you can then send it to your soon-to-be ex-spouse. They can fill out their bit at home or with their solicitor. Um, yeah. And then it could be sent off. But if, as you say, if you're represented by the same solicitor, it's got to be a paper application, but you don't need to go and sit down in the same room as yeah. the same solicitor. Yeah. If you do it digitally, ap applicant one fills it in, sends it to applicant two, to, who's got to review it and approve it before it can be uh, sent to the court. That's right, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And um, finally, um, the court fee. Now, uh, I think probably because of the bureaucracy behind it, but it is not possible if the parties make a joint application for each party to pay half. So they have to come to a private arrangement and applicant one is liable to pay it with the form, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, so it's no longer uh, the case that you can say, well, actually, the respondent should pay the fees. If you want to get divorced, you have to pay for it, basically. Yeah. So just tell me about when you can dispute a... Um, an application so the the general rule is that you now can't um i assume that most people have now looked at the new d8 uh, there isn't even a box for you to type anything to dispute it is quite literally mm. a box that you that you tick that confirms that the marriage is broken down so you can only really dispute on uh, procedural points and those three are jurisdiction uh, which we're all familiar with so if you need to dispute on the basis of jurisdiction that hasn't changed um, the validity of the marriage so whether actually there was a, a valid marriage, I'm sure we've all come across cases where or read about cases where there's a concern over a foreign uh, proceedings marriage, was it a proceedings marriage, etc. Um, or that the marriage uh, or I should say civil partnerships, so we're including civil partnerships in all of this. If we don't say it, we do mean to include it. Um, but the marriage or civil partnership has already been uh, legally ended. So, for example, if uh, someone comes to court and says, well, we can't get divorced here because we already had a talak in Lebanon, for example, um, where exactly uh, where they recognise Sharia law. Uh, I have also wondered, um, you must be able to continue to dispute on the basis of capacity. I'm uh, it's sure not that's got to be right. Yeah. Yeah, it's, not, it's not specifically mentioned in the legislation, but we're mentioning it because we think that must be the case. And um, would that be a convenient point to come on and talk about service? Because that's a key change, isn't it? Can you just run us through the headline points on that? Yes. So in relation to service, the general rule is that the court will send the application uh, to the respondent, um, but the applicant can request to do that. So effectively, unless you say otherwise, the court is going to serve uh, the application on the respondent. The second general rule, big headline point, is that service is going to be via email. Um, an important point to note on that, because obviously when you complete the DH, you have got to fill in the respondent's email address and postal address. If you only have a postal address, but not an email address, that is fine. The court will serve by a post. If you only have an email address, you have to apply for alternative service. 
Don't I, ask us why. Uh, I don't think you or I have been able to figure out why that is, particularly as the rule change is that email service is going to be the predominant form of service. Mm. But if you only have an email address, you need to apply for alternative uh, service. Part of the reason for that may well be because with email service also has to be sent a postal notification. So mm. if you're leaving it up to the court to do that, the court will do that. I'm assuming uh, maybe people have received them uh, already. I don't know if you have, let us know what it says. But certainly when we were preparing the seminars a couple of weeks ago, we couldn't find any wording for this. But when uh, service is done by email, either the court will send it or you have to send if you as the applicant have nominated uh, to do service yourself. Um, you have to send a postal notification, which presumably says words to the effect of uh, you've been served via email, please make sure that you check your junk box, it went to this email address. Now, just pausing there about email addresses, what the rules say about how to define which email address you should be used, it should be using for the application, is that it is the respondent's usual email address. And that means personal as opposed to business. Um, so you've got to send it to an email address that you know that they're going to be checking. You shouldn't be creating uh, an email address for joeblogs at hotmail.com um, and saying that you've sent it there and it's been good service. Um, there is a danger, um, I think, that people may do that or they may send it to an obscure email address that they know that their ex-husband had 20 years ago um, and say that there's been good service because effectively good email service is just that you didn't receive a bounce back. Um, and interestingly, you don't need to have had confirmation that the postal notification has been served effectively for email service to be good service. Yeah. So there, there is, unfortunately, some error for uh, manipulation or actually just, I think, genuine mistake yeah. um, in that respect. And actually, some of the things that people raised when we've spoken about this before is actually, you know, should we be um, putting read receipts on emails? Mm. And I think our general view has been, yes, that's probably going to be very helpful. Um, yeah. Because I think it that would be very avoids helpful. the dispute um, going forward. And what about um, personal service? So personal service, interestingly, the rule change here mirrors what's already going on in domestic abuse injunction situations, which is that if you as an applicant wish to serve personally, you cannot take your application to the respondent and serve it on them yourself. So you can still have personal service via a process server, for example, if you've got a particularly evasive respondent and you need to make sure that you've got a statement confirming that they've been served through application for deemed service, for example. But you as the applicant cannot yourself, Mrs. Smith, take your application to Mr. Smith mm. and say that that's good service because it's not. OK. And what about if you... Oh, I don't know, I'm thinking about a situation where the parties have been separated for a long time, they haven't got an up-to-date email address, they're worried about getting service um, done in the four weeks, they've chosen to do service themselves rather than leave it to the court as a result. Um, what, are, what are the rules for extending time? So in respect of extension for time for service, this is under the new rule 6.6b. Effectively, if it looks like you're getting to the end of your allocated 28 days to complete service, then you can make an application to extend uh, the time for that. You should do that within the 28 days. 
So yeah. if you get to day 26 or 27 and it doesn't look like you're going to be able to achieve service within the 28 days, then you should make your application then. Um, but you can also make it afterwards. But if you do make it afterwards, you have got to provide the court with a good reason as to why the application to extend the 28 days was late. Mm. Um, obviously, we, we don't know what a good reason is yet, do we? Because there no. hasn't been any case law on this. But I think I think there will be. I think there will be litigation on this and there will be what is a good reason for extending time for service. But effectively, when you do want to extend that 28 days, then this is whether or not you're within the initial 28 day period when you make that application, the court uh, will consider whether the court itself has failed to serve the application. I'm assuming that's a slam dunk if the court itself has not has not been able to serve, um, whether the applicant has taken reasonable steps to comply with the 28 day period and whether the applicant has acted promptly. Yeah. And I mean, all of these things are, are really where the concerns around the new rules centre, aren't they? Because um, what we have established is that unlike um, under the, civ uh, the, the civil procedure rules, there is no express sanction if someone does not, um, does not serve within the 28 days. No, and exactly. What, what some commentators, I think Michael Horton QC, who was speaking um, to a Young Resolution, um, said is what people have worked out is that it is only if the respondent takes issue with the date of service that at that point the application would be dismissed and the party would have to make another application um, but of course if so you're sort of hedging your bets, aren't you? Because if you're an applicant, you you think you're going to be late. You yep. could just be quiet about it, hope the respondent doesn't do anything, not make an application to extend and see if the respondent takes issue with it, save the costs of doing it, etc. But then if you get that particularly difficult respondent who, for instance, is in a jurisdictional race, wants to get an advantage by mm. uh, getting the petition dismissed, they could make it very difficult. So it's a bit of a thorny issue, isn't it? They could definitely make it difficult. Uh, particularly because if you are looking at an application to extend, but you're also worried about deemed service or alternative service, you're going to have to make those applications at the same time, particularly in respect of alternative service, which is something that I just wanted to mention, mm. because the court is going to try and achieve service. Um, but if it doesn't achieve service, effectively, you've got one further attempt to mm. provide the court with an alternative email or postal address before the court says, well, you've had your two attempts, that's it, we're not going to do it yeah. anymore. Um, all the meanwhile, the 28-day clock is running, but as you've already said, Tara, there are no express sanctions within the FPR as to what happens if service is not complied mm -hmm. with within the 28 days. So you could just hedge your bets and think, well, actually, that email address hasn't worked, but we'll try a second email address, but it's, it's day 35. Um, yeah. And if the respondent doesn't take issue, then it seems that the application, okay. um, the application can proceed without any sanction to the applicant. Yeah, and and that's where that the inability of the, uh, the the court's inability to extend this twenty six week period comes into it because mm. you could not 
not serve the respondent in time and it only gets to the point where actually it's very close to the conditional order being made that a respondent might want to take issue because they haven't had appropriate notice to stop the conditional order being made if they wanted to um and so that the lack of the ability to extend that 26 weeks is really the the um the sort of high watermark of, of, of when service needs to take place, isn't that? It will be interesting to see whether you can retrospectively apply for an application for an extension of service, given that it doesn't need to be made within the 28 days. Mm. So say, for example, you achieve service on the 35th day, it will be interesting to see whether you can achieve, secure permission I, from the court yeah. if that's going to be needed, if you are yeah. then worried um, yeah. at day 35 that you've got a respondent that's going to be start going to start being difficult about it i mean if you've got if you've got the juris if you if there isn't the time pressure one might say you just agree to that petition being dismissed and put in a new one and you're gonna it's gonna cost you the 500 pounds it might be cheaper than a contested application to extend time oh absolutely but from a cost benefit analysis yeah. absolutely um and was there anything else you wanted to say about service? I know you want to talk about costs before we before we finish off. I think in relation to service out of the jurisdiction, that remains exactly the same. There are some new yeah. rules about it, as in because the whole procedure rules for that particular issue have been redrafted. But you've still got to get your service done within 28 days. Okay. Um, and there's a mirror provision to extend the time for service outside of the jurisdiction under a separate rule. Uh, it's 6.41b uh, for anyone that's listening that needs it. Um, alternative service and deemed service remain exactly the same. Again, they're redrafted rules, but uh, they are exactly the same in terms of what they say. They're just in a different place. And so apart from the obvious reason that courts are very overburdened administratively, there can be errors. In what circumstances do you foresee applicants wanting to retain responsibility for service and asking the court to do it themselves well I think that's I think that's it Tara I think people are skeptical about the court's ability to um, administer divorces given the huge backlogs that we Mm. all know about at Bury St Edmunds and the Midlands Divorce Unit and East Midlands Divorce Unit and the like Um, another reason why you might want to retain control of it is so that you have control of it and you have all of the evidence there and you don't need to go back and collect the evidence um, from the court uh, mm. to make sure that they are able to um, provide you with the necessary evidence if you need it for deemed service, etc. Yeah, so if you know a respondent's going to be tricky, going to be obstructive, mm. you might want to take responsibility and just do belts and braces approach. Yeah, I completely okay. agree. And so finally, Samara, can you tell me a little bit about costs? I would I would love to, but we haven't got very clear rules about what is going to be what is going to be happening with costs applications. Um, certainly, effectively, I would say that if you want your divorce, you've got to pay for it. That appears yeah. to be the way that we're now dealing with it. There's no responsibility on the other party, the respondent, to contribute to the costs of the divorce. Mm. That, I think, is going to come into the fore a lot with aggrieved parties who feel like they've had to apply for a divorce because, for example, they're the yeah. victim of some very obvious domestic abuse. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that that's going to find favour with those Uh, clients Uh, and understandably I do have sympathy with that Um, but at the same time 
I think the court was going to struggle to try and administer costs um, in any other way for standard applications. So those that are not being disputed, there was guidance issued on the 28th of March. So a couple of weeks ago now um, from the president of the family division. And he said uh, that costs in standard cases will, for the most part, be in, inappropriate in terms of costs applications, because it is quite difficult to see in what circumstances you would say that costs were appropriate. Um, the guidance is that if you are going to try and make a costs application, um, then it will likely be dealt with on paper in respect of standard cases. In respect of disputed cases, that's much more familiar territory yeah. in the sense that the court will likely list a hearing to deal with it. But warning is that uh, the losing party will most likely have to pay the winning party's costs. But we're familiar with that because the rules on, for example, jurisdictional disputes haven't changed. Yeah. And one would hope with joint applications, by virtue of the fact they're doing it jointly, they can agree their costs, even though it's uh, falls to the applicant one to 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 be liable according to the system. Yes, I'd very much hope so. And I would also hope in circumstances where either the parties are uh, conciliatory or they've both got solicitors on board, that perhaps it will become practice that solicitors will just say, look, yes, it's the applicant's responsibility to pay it, but in the spirit of trying to get this sorted amicably, let's try and share the costs with the other party um, so that we don't have uh, we don't have an antagonistic approach moving forwards. Well, Samara, thank you so much for that um, blow by blow introduction to no fault divorce. I think um, legal practitioners have been very excited uh, about its introduction and for very good reason. Um, and we will just watch this space, but we hope this has been useful. Many thanks, Samara. Thanks, Tara.